Um, I get to introduce the dynamic duo that are bringing shipping into the, you know, the new new century. We're skipping over, you know, generations and becoming a podcast-friendly environment, which is something I, I, I didn't think I would see from this industry. To that end, I'm going to introduce Luke Zakovich and Callum Shane. They're both from Tyler Floyd and Zakovich. Luke is a leading international lawyer who participates in maritime disputes and advisory work, as well as an array of commercial arbitration litigation, and other projects. He's a co-founder of Zyler Floyd Zakovich, an international firm based in New York, London, Vienna, Chicago, Houston, and Sydney. He himself, he's been practicing for 16 years, is uh, licensed in New York, licensed in Australia, and licensed in the UK. So he's got a multi-jurisdictional uh, practice in play. He holds an LLB and BA from UOW and an LLM, international business from King's College in London got a keen interest in technology for electronic commodity trading and shipping. And I suspect that's probably what started this podcast. And then Callum Chain is a senior associate with Zyler Floyd, specializes also in international commercial law with a broad range of litigation and arbitration experience and a focus on disputes in the maritime and energy sectors. He works with clients across the breadth of these sectors, including owners, charters, yards, financing banks, and has done substantial work relating to security actions and the enforcement of claims. He holds a BA in history from Durham University and a graduate diploma in law and legal practice from BPP University in London. Together, this dynamic duo has created the podcast. It's called Case by Case, and they've been doing it, I think, every Thursday, more or less, since May of 2021. They've steadily been publishing these episodes weekly. And given their experience, they find themselves often looking at maritime cases with very clever titles, I might add. And they've dealt into some Australian immigration law on, uh, I think, last week or the week before with Don Djokovic and his problem with the visa in, in Australia. And they've done an interesting case on a vintage Ferrari as well. If you're interested, these chaps would very much appreciate if you'd subscribe or follow their podcasts on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This particular podcast will be recorded and will circulate links to the podcast following today's seminar. The format for today's session will be they will deliver a, a, a regular live case-by-case recording, chatting amongst themselves in their usual approach. And then at some time, hopefully at the end, we'll have some time for questions. I'll hand it over at this stage to Luke and Callum. Well, thank you very much, Molly. I, I very much appreciate the introduction and your kind words and for the opportunity to be here. Thank you also, Leroy, for your, your introduction. And to everyone who is here from the SMA, it's, it's a, a pleasure for both Callum and Shane and I to, to come along and, and talk to you about one of our pieces. Yeah, it's just, it's wonderful to see such a good turnout and this podcast is uh, a first for us because we're doing it live, live to an audience rather than just Cal and I riffing with each other. And yeah, we're also going to put this onto our usual feed. So thank you to our, our audience who listen into these podcasts. We hope like this particular one. And with that, I'll, I'll welcome in Callum as well. How are you today, Callum? I'm feeling the pressure a little bit, to be honest. Luke, normally, it's, normally this is me doing it in my, you know, in in front of just a microphone and nothing else, whereas today it's, I feel like we've got a lot of eyes on us. We do. And also I realized we don't typically video record no. um, our podcasts. Yeah. So, you know, I'm usually trying to do the whole, you know, duck with the, the feet going very fast on the water and stay serene in my voice on top. But really I'm, you know, 
looking at document after document on my page. So we'll, we'll see how this this pans out for our our viewing audience. Yeah, I've actually I've minimized the video with with everybody's faces on it just so it feels more like a natural discussion between the two. Good one. Well, look, um, today today we're going to be talking about an English court of appeal decision. It's known as the the eternal bliss, named after the vessel involved in in the dispute. And we're obviously talking to the Society of Maritime Arbitrators in New York. So we have a, a US audience, which we, with a, a number of leading and highly esteemed maritime arbitrators on the, on the US side, as well as other council. So it's, it's a real pleasure to be able to present before this audience. And we intend to look at the case, give a, a summary of the English decision, and uh, if you have not listened in to one of our podcasts before, that's fine. We, we hope you join us moving forward. But the, the, the way that we do it is we don't talk about what we're going to say in advance. It's completely unprepared as between the two of us. We each read the relevant decision, jot down a few notes uh, to ourselves, jump on to the podcast and see how we get on. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we disagree. And we have different observations along the way. So this, this case that we're talking about today, as I say, is an English court of appeal decision. Later on, I think we're going to get into the relevance for the US audience and look at some of the, the, the US authorities, if that's good with you, Carl. That's good for me. It's, this The topic is demurrage, broadly speaking, and it's an area where I know there is a distinction between the, the English approach and the US approach, quite an interesting one, which has a number of effects, but they have a bearing on the way that a U.S. well, depending on the circuit, the the U.S. court might look at at Demarish. They, they may not follow the English decision here. I think, although I'll be interested in your take on that from someone who's qualified in in New York. Yeah, we're we're spoiled with a, a great array of SMA arbitration decisions on the U.S. side to look at, which really get into some of the issues surrounding this topic, if I can put it like that. I should say at the outset that we have not found a U.S. decision exactly on point dealing with the scenario here. And I think it's a rare scenario anyway, which we'll, we'll get onto in a moment once we, once we paint the picture. But the, for, for those that like citations, the decision is the, the K-Line and Prumen Shipping Hong Kong 2021 EWCA and Civil Courts 1712. We had three Lord Justices, uh, Sir Geoffrey Voss, Master of the Rolls, Lord Justice Newey and Lord Justice Mayles sitting on this decision that gave judgment on 18 November 2021. I can't believe that it's coming up to almost three three months since this decision. It feels like this came out the other day. Yeah, time flies. I've been saving it for the, I've been saving it for the for the for this podcast actually. It's a, because it's a decision that I'm very I find very interesting, this whole area, and I've been waiting to read it before doing this podcast. So I, I was able to enjoy it over the last few days. And it doesn't feel like three months have passed since then. It's been a busy few months, but there's um yeah, time flies and you're having fun. That's that's right. Well, well why don't we do our usual and, and open up with the facts um, to get everyone onto the, the same page about what we're talking about? Yeah, so this was a, there, there, there was a, a charge party on the, on the Norgrain forum. There was actually a, there was a COA between Kaelin as the owner and Primmons as the charterer. And it was for the carriage of around 70,000 metric tons of uh, soybean. And there was a... Significant period of delay, which gave rise to a claim in demurrage. There was no other breach of the of the fixture 
other than the breach of exceeding the, the lay days or in, in not discharging it at the rate required of the charterer. And as a result of those delays, so as a result of that breach, there was also significant cargo damage. And there was then a claim brought by the receivers against the owners and owners settled that claim. There was no, there was no dispute between them about that claim, but they, they, they'd settled it uh, reasonably. And it was then Hayline as owners then tried to pass this, pass this damage on down the chain to Primmons. And they say that it falls outside the demurrage payment, that, that, that they are entitled to payment of the cargo claim in addition to the demurrage sum, notwithstanding that the, the cargo claim arose only after the delay, which, which was a breach of contract, but for which they've, they've received the demurrage payment. So the dispute was quite a narrow one. It was simply the question of where, the, where a charterer has, well, where, where damage has been caused by a breach of the charterer and the breach is exceeding the lay days, is demurrage the sole remedy open to the owner? Or in, in circumstances like this, is the owner entitled on top of demurrage also to claim for the cargo losses? It, it may, may be interesting as well to, to consider how this got before the court because it wasn't, a, it wasn't an English high court jurisdiction contract. The, the, the agreement, I think, was for LMAA terms, obviously the London Maritime Arbitrators Association, and it got into the courts by agreement of the parties to put this question to the courts, which you can do, I think, under Section 45 of the Arbitration Act. And from an English practitioner's perspective, if you, if you have a question of law like this, where there's no answer in the courts, then the parties can agree to send that, you know, to, you, you produce the assumed facts, you get the neat question of law, and you then kind of bifurcate that question away from the arbitration. The arbitration's effectively stayed pending the resolution of that question, and the courts then are able to give a decision on it, which is binding and uh, you know, can, can, then, can then be used in all the other decisions. Um, yeah, and it's, it's an interesting procedural point to, to note for, for this audience, and I'm sure all are aware of it, but you have in England private arbitration awards or confidential arbitration awards. There is a function now where they're summarised in an anonymous way, and we've, we've actually spoken about a few of those previously, but you have a, a right to appeal on errors of law um, to the court system. And that is, of course, different in um, the US context, whereas in the US context, there's more privacy given to the arbitration award itself. It's the final word, really, on, on issues of substantive law. There are challenges that you can bring that have a quite a high threshold, as we know, but that's a, that's a different beast, different animal than an appeal on a point of law. So when looking at it from a a US perspective on this issue. There are, of course, court decisions on these issues, but there's, as I said before, quite a wide range of SMA arbitration awards dealing with the Irish cases and all sorts of issues arising from it, more so than when we look on the English side, we're looking at court judgments that may well have been appeals from arbitration decisions or indeed just court decisions. Yeah, and, and I think it's probably fair to say that often the cases that we see in the maritime context are appeals on a point of law. Those are the ones that tend to get into the, yeah. we, we get interesting judgments on. There's, there's, there's a right to appeal under Section 69 of the Arbitration Act in, in England. Parties can agree to waive that. You, you can't agree as a party to waive, your, uh, to waive your challenge of the award on jurisdiction. You can't agree to waive your challenge on 
a, a serious irregularity, but you can agree to to waive the right to appeal on appointed law. And we see those we see those appeals going to the High Court you know, quite quite frequently. It's, it's difficult to it's difficult to pass the test necessary to appeal a decision, but we do see obviously there's such a throughput of arbitrations that we do see those those coming through. But this is a different mechanism where you can basically say in the arbitration by agreement, let's have this let's have this issue determined. And there can be loads of reasons for it, especially in something like something like maritime well in, in in the maritime trade where you have a number of disputes arising on similar issues then it you know you can see you can see the reason why two parties might say actually it helps us more broadly than just this case to have a finding that we can rely on on this decision yeah and also when you think about this particular factual matrix you could actually see why both parties you know and this will become clear as we go on i think but you can see why both parties are looking at the law and saying, well, actually, there's not a satisfactory answer one way or the other. And I, that's not my opinion only. That's what the, the judges, the, the Lord Justices in this decision say expressly. Yeah. And I think there's a good reason for that when you think about it. So, so what, what we're dealing with here is, is a one breach, two types of loss case, if I can put it like that. And, and, I say, and I describe it like that because there are other types of cases where there are two breaches. And when there are two different, separate, independent breaches under English law, it's it's clearly been held for a while now that you can get damages for that second independent breach and the the the, the breach of the lease-on obligations and, and therefore the the demurrage that floats from that doesn't limit that other damages claim for the second breach. So so those are kind of the the known as the the two breaches cases. We're dealing with a one breach case here, but two different types of loss. The one breach being that the charter has failed to discharge the vessel in a timely fashion. And as we all know, when that happens, when the charter goes beyond the lay days, beyond the lay time afforded in the, the charter, that the parties typically have agreed on a demurrage rate to compensate for the, the, the loss of use of the vessel. And, and the question here is, well, is it limited to that type of loss, it, it, it is, are the parties able to claim for this second type of loss, which was an indemnity or damages claim brought by owners against charters for cargo damage, which they settled out with the cargo interests. So one breach, two types of loss. And when, when you're thinking about this particular scenario here, where the breach is a fail, failure to discharge the vessel in a timely fashion, you're talking about a very short window of time, logistically. Yeah. Just just like at the start of the voyage, you know, if they were breaching the lay days on loading, it would be a failure to load within the lay days. Um, and it's a very short period of time. And when you think about causation, again, in a practical sense, pin, pinpointing that um, tardiness in the discharging operations led to a cargo loss is quite a quite a tricky thing to make out. You can see this is a perishable, perishable cargo and the rest of it, that it would be possible. But when you have vessels transiting on sea and, you know, obligations of reasonable dispatch and there would be an independent breach for that if the vessel's taking longer during during the transit, that it's difficult causation-wise to say, well, just because you're slow in the loading or the discharging, that's what caused this loss. Yeah. I think that may, that may be one reason why the, 
we're not seeing this case come up time and time and time again. Yeah, and I think that that's probably the reason why it's not come up before. But you can see it, you can see it in the cases of perishable goods like this. But you can also yeah. see it with kind of non-hazardous goods that have capacity to cause some damage to the vessel. And I'm thinking about things like sulfur cargoes, where they wouldn't necessarily be characterized as hazardous cargoes, but if you if you leave a sulfur cargo on board for too long, then I think the way that not not uh, not huge in my expertise, but I, I understand that the way that uh, you treat a cargo of sulfur is that you would you would do a lime wash over the top and protect the holes in that way. But the lime wash ultimately gets burnt through. So if you had a long a long period of delay with the cargo of sulfur in bulk, then you can see how potentially there you would you could incur damage to a vessel on the basis of of delay. So it, it's it's a, it's a narrow application, but at the same time, it's it's something which is quite conceivable. I, I was slightly surprised that we've not that there's not been a case on it um, so far. Yeah, I, I take that. I just think that in reality, the it, it's it's a type of issue that wouldn't arise too often. There's also the other point that wasn't dealt with in the first instance decision because they proceeded on the basis of assumed facts. But there, there seems to be an open question as to whether owners had some type of defense that they could have brought um, against the cargo interests in the primary cargo claim as to the inherent nature of the cargo. Yeah. And you can see that that type of issue may well be ventilated in that cargo claim um, and often doesn't get as far as needing the pass-through through the charter chain uh, and then through to the voyage charters. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so there's a few points in that. Uh, should we just... Uh, should we just touch on the the posture before the court? So, so we had at first instance, as Callum said, it was uh, put to the court on on an agreed basis as to what the issue is. The first instance uh, went with Otis. They decided that the general principle that under under English law, okay, I need to emphasise that because we're going to get on to the US position, but under English law, that demurrage is liquidated damages and the liquidated damages covers all types of losses that may arise by virtue of breaching the, the obligation to load or discharge within laid acts. The first instance decision decided that's not the case um, in this situation and that it was possible um, for the owners to recover both the Demurrage for for the delays caused by the loss of use, and also a recovery for the cargo damage that came through through the charter chain, and the charter has then appealed that to the court of appeal. Um, I don't think we need to get into you know the too much of the first instance decision, but you know focusing on the court of appeal, the the, the main arguments that the charters were bringing were obviously that the the general presumption is that clauses that liquidate damages um, and, and liquidate damages for delay in the performance of certain contractual obligations are intended to cover all losses flying from that breach. So whether it's uh, loss of loss of use, whether here it was cargo damage, whether it's any other types of losses for that matter that flow from that sole breach, remember, that we're talking about one breach scenario, uh, they are all covered by the liquidating effect of the, de- the demurrage clause. And, and some of the reasons, I suppose, that the, the charters gave for, for that or in support of, of the appeal is that there's there's, there's almost like a drive for certainty uh, when looking at liquidation 
clauses. And they drew examples outside of the maritime context and look at construction contracts. And they, you know, they looked at when parties introduce liquidation clauses into their contracts, that they're typically wanting to deal with all of the issues that may arise from that particular breach that the clause covers. Perhaps if you want to take on what the owners were saying. Yeah, and so the, the, the owners were saying, well, you have to look at what the loss at, at what, what loss is supposed to be covered. And they were saying, well, the, the loss that we're trying to cover with demurrage is the value of the vessel to owners that they're not able to, that they're not able to use the vessel for this period. And the demurrage rate is, is basically a mechanism that's used to avoid having to prove how much the market value of the vessel would have been for that period that we couldn't use it. And therefore it follows that demurrage is only intended to cover that part of the loss and it's not intended to cover the rest. I don't know what your, what, which way you go on this one, like whether you're in with the High Court or the Court of Appeal. It's an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting question. I, I can see... I, I can see arguments for both, but I, I, I tend to think that ultimately this was the right decision under English law. I appreciate that, that the US cases go different ways on this for historical reasons. You're going to go the other way? Yeah, I think the High Court got it right. I think it's very, it's, it's fine, it's very finely balanced, but I think the High Court got it right. And you're going to prove me wrong in the Supreme Court? Is that what you're telling me? Maybe. There's not been any, there's not been any decision on the, on the application for leave to appeal, but I understand from one of the counsel involved who are working with on other cases that the application has gone in. Okay. So, yeah, all right. It'll be interesting. So, so, so we will see. It'll we'll find out who's ultimately right or wrong. I, I suspect uh, it's supposed to accept it. Give it a lead. I, I think the Supreme Court will look at this. It, it's quite an interesting point. I mean, it also touches on other aspects of demarriage and how it works, not directly in a ratio sense, but it, it does touch on it. I know we've made this comment before, but I, I really do enjoy reading uh, Lord Justice Mail's decisions and, and not just the substance. Uh, of course, you know, the substance is... It, it, doesn't really, you know, need me to comment on it. But the, this, the, the pros of how he writes, I just, I always enjoy it. And there's this great phrase in here about, you know, looking at trying to, to work out whether uh, Atkin, uh, Atkin in the, the Radar Arcos case, whether he, from the judgment he gave, whether he was a one breach or a two breach man. You know, this, this line with all respect to an extremely eminent judge. It is in our view impossible to tell. <laughs> <laughs> there is a one brief man or two brief men. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so like the joking aside, that was a, a decision relied upon by by the owners in this case to say that the, the radar course was some authority, or at least there was some some authority out yeah, that went towards the idea of one breach being able to being able to recover two types of losses for one breach. And Ultimately, the, the Court of Appeal here said, look, this, this ongoing debate, and there's been a lot of commentary in the English textbooks on this over the years, it, it's just not necessary. The, the, the very fact that there's an ongoing debate about all this says that it's an obscure decision with all due respect. And there hasn't really been, there's the Bond decision as well that we'll come on to that goes the other direction that's more in favour of charters. But there hasn't really been an on-point decision that's dealt with this issue on all fours. And let's look at it 
almost afresh, looking at, at what's been, what's happened before, looking at all the authorities, looking at the textbooks, weighing it up, looking at it from a commercial perspective. But let's analyze it and come to uh, a conclusion ourselves in this decision. And I think that's what's quite interesting about this case. And also probably, as you say, why it will, why it will go up further. Yeah, it's just a case of the judges looking at it and, and applying what they think is the right law. They, they go through the historic law in some detail, but they they ultimately come, you know, come to the conclusion that it doesn't help them very much. So they, you know, it's, it's a, it's a free play, if you like, they get to go and just make them make their own mind up on it, which, which makes it very interesting reading that. So the, the way that I look at this reason I thought that the the high court decision was correct. I'm interested in your take on this, Luke. The way I look at it is this, if you, what what do you get if you're a charterer chartering a ship on a voyage charter, charter basis? What you get is space on board the ship, right? You don't get the the whole use of the ship because it's not a time charter. You get you get basically to put your stuff on board and use up space. And mm-hmm. while you're using that space, you you're you're getting what you what you paid for. And if you use that space for too long, then you pay demurrage, and the demurrage is calculated on the price of of using that space, and it's not calculated on the basis of anything else. So. So what, what's the marriage intended to cover? For me, it's intended to cover the loss of use by owners of space on board their vessel. And it doesn't go further than that. It's, it, it's not intended to cover anything more than that. And I think that's probably what the, what the parties intend when they, when they contract. I think that's, that's probably enough certainty for them that, they, that, that what they're getting is, is, is space on board a ship. And well, I, I think the counter argument to that is is around a, a draft as a, a drafting point, and also there's there's a, a cost allocation point. On on the drafting point, I think the the court here was saying that if we start from the premise that demurrage is a liquidation clause, and a liquidation clause in many many contexts covers all losses arising from the breach that the clause covers, then it's well within the the ability of the parties to limit that clause, limit the effect of that clause, which it would ordinarily have under law in other contexts. And where they don't do that, then it should be construed as covering all all types of damages. I think it's probably more a case of th- these types of issues not arising all that, that often, people not thinking about commercial parties not really considering what other types of losses may flow from that particular breach, but that's not to say that when you when you employ a clause that has a, t- a typical effect under English law, that that you, you cannot you know when it's very easy to to draft around it, that you should be construed as having a narrow construction. It's a li- it's a little bit, it's a little bit like you know the Athos One type decision, the Supreme Court in the US, where. You can have a you have an industry understanding of what what the, the, there's an absolute duty as to safe birth, safe board warranties, and if if you want to narrow that, you can you can draft in a due diligence obligation, and you can rework it. Now, the way that they kind of justify that, the court kind of commercially justified that strict drafting interpretation. Was I actually look at insurance? I was, uh, I was, was one of the points I was going to bring up where they, they, they argued, well, they found that in a, 
you know, the typical charter party, it's going to be the owners who have p insurance and it's the ship owner that bears the cost of that. And typically the charterer, I think we should be clear that it's a voyage charterer here, not a, not a um, time charterer who may well have charters liability covers for p and Some voyage charters may as well. But they, and, and, and query that, because that's, that, that is a, a question that comes from this decision as to how accurate that is. But what they're saying is that the, there's no insurance that the voyage charter takes out typically to, to allocate the cost of, of that insurance. And so when, when, they're, they're, when they're looking at the pricing for demurrage uh, rates, and they're agreeing that at the outset, it's kind of on, a, on an understanding that the cost of insurance for cargo claims rests at the top of the tree mm. uh, with, with the ship owner. I'm not sure if I've quite explained that well, but th- that, that's, that was one of the commercial rationales for, for, for this analysis. Yeah, I can see that, I can see that the, the, the ordinary position is that the owner is, is insuring the risk of, the, of cargo damage. But at the same time, it's not impossible that the, that the shipper is ultimately liable for that damage through, the, through other breaches. You know, if we have a two-breach case, then the charter is really liable. So I agree. I, I, yeah, I, you know, I can see the commercial reason, reasoning behind it. But to me, it's not, the, it, it's not like it's the totally excluded risk from the charter's perspective. The other, the other well, thing... Well, let, me ask, let me ask you another question. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you. But it, it, if this decision stood, let's say... Yeah. Um, Let's say it wasn't going up. Do you think there would be a, you know, a string of instructions coming in through the door as happy we, we might be for them to start drafting limited demurrage clauses? I can see why you would just start having uh, demurrage open brackets for loss of, for loss of use only, close brackets in a recap. I think that's, that, yeah. that would probably be enough to signify that you're trying to fall outside this regime. But ultimately, I don't think commercial parties negotiate around demurrage. They just assume demurrage to be something that, well... It, the, the thing is, I don't think people think about demurrage in the same level of depth as the court has had to on this specific point about a, a, you know excess damages from one breach. So I'm not sure that really you'd start seeing renegotiated demurrage provisions. I think people would just be happy to just continue to say that it's demurrage. It's one of the, one of the reasons why I don't find the the argument that you know you know we've we've made this decision and parties can draft around it if they want. I don't find that that compelling a decision because parties will continue probably to just keep putting in demurrage. But one of the other points that I was thinking about when I was reading this is if you can have, you can have more than one voyage charter party in the same, for the same vessel at the same time. You can have concurrent voyage charter parties and each of those voyage charter parties can have their own demurrage regime. And if each of those demurrage regimes is incorporating all loss caused by a delay caused by one of the holds, then is there not a defense to each of those charterers to say, actually, someone else has already covered you for that loss? Under, under your charge party for hold one, you've, you've received payment in respect of all losses arising as a result of the delay, because that's what demurrage means. So I don't need, so my demurrage is for hold one. Oh, yeah, I see where you go with that. Yeah. It's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And for me, that's why, you know, it fits more neatly if, if it's, well, what have you got? You've got, you've got space on a ship and what's the loss? What's the use of that space? And how's demurrage calculated with reference to pretty much the, the assumed value of that space on board the ship for the period that it's, that it's running per day per rata. To me, there's more commercial certainty in that approach than, than, than in the, the approach that the court has ultimately gone with. But it's, I'm interested to hear, because we've, we've alluded to it, but 
the difference between the position under English law and, and the possible position under US law, as I understand it, comes because US law frames the idea of demurrage somewhat differently to English law. And on the English side, you've got, you know, demurrage is liquidated damages for a breach. But my understanding is that there's a, there's a difference, a distinction between that and the way the US courts approach it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point to raise because it, it actually, there's quite a bit of history to, to demurrage in the US, I mean that with respect, but at one point, there was there were a lot of cases in the in the mid nineteen eighties that talked about demurrage as being extended freight. Mm. So rather than rather than liquidated um, damages, but more as a concept of you know this is just more compensation for the use of the vessel. And in, and that, in that analysis, is there is there a breach at all? Do they say that the the, the lady does? Do, do they get to that by saying there's no, you know, the, the, the lay days is a period of free waiting and then the demurrage rate kicks in as payment of freight after that and therefore breach, you know, exceeding the lay days is not a breach? Is that the... Well, I, I don't think so. I think it's still a breach and it also came up a few times in cases involving consignees as well. So I'm not sure it was purely a, a, a charter party analysis as well, but I think there's still a breach. It's more, it's more a question of, you know, what, types of damages can you then claim and where where the, where the u.s position now so I, I think now it's probably well known that that under u.s law demurrage is treated more as liquidated damages and there are a number of decisions that refer to refer to that they don't appra- approach the the liquidation quite in the same way as the english approaches it, it the English approach is a much narrower, stricter interpretation, as we've seen by this decision, which you don't like, um, that says it covers all, all damages. The U.S. position, it, it, there's two aspects to it. One, one is that they also strongly have the principle of a, an additional breach. So two breach cases, we refer to it uh, on the English side. So where you have a scenario where, uh, let's say, the charterer fails to have a cargo ready to load. That can be seen as a separate breach of the charter party in addition to the the additional time that's being taken. And then the US decisions will look to, okay, there is a, there's an additional breach. So you get into, you you get into uh, damages for detention rather than just the demurring threat. And most of the decisions approach it in that way. But there's also this second element to the analysis, which I would describe more as a qualitative um, approach by the US SMA arbitrators and, and calls in actually looking at the nature of the breach. So even in a, in a, a one breach scenario where the, the sole breach is um, taking too long, it's a breach of late time, that the the decision makers actually look to see what happened and regularly will give awards for detention damages, even whether it's a demurrage rate, even where there's only one, technically one breach for things like abnormal delays, failure to open uh, the required letter of credit timely, delays associated with issuing bills, failure to move the previous cargo from the dock intended for loading, Failure to promptly nominate loading, well, that might be a separate breach. But and 
where it kind of ends up is there's, there's as I understand it anyway, there's more of a, an analysis of did the charterer do something deliberate? Did they, you know, act unusually? Did mm. they do something beyond what is just typically intended to be compensated for by the Damari trade? And if so, there's there's a real propensity, as I see it, on, on the US side to allow the artist to, deco- to recover damages. Whereas the English approach would be much more on the basis of this decision, much more about, and not just on the basis of this, this decision, on the basis of what the demurrage is, the liquidated damages. English approach, it doesn't really matter if there's that level of deliberateness yeah. or, you know, it's not a qualitative assessment. It covers all types of damages. It's supposed yeah. to liquidate and you're limited to that in a one breach scenario. So it's, it's quite an interesting kind of dynamic there. It is interesting. Were there any other, any other final comments? I'm conscious we've, we've run up on an hour. If not, then I think it's, it just leaves us to, to thank you all for, for letting us have this opportunity to speak with you about uh, the eternal bliss, how it may or may not be relevant to, to US practice, uh, or at least as a comparison. Thanks, Gal. Good fun as always. Yeah, really good for that. And I enjoyed it a lot. I'd also just like to pass on my thanks to everybody listening and uh, particularly people who had some uh, questions at the end and some nice uh, discussion. So thanks for inviting us along and thanks for listening and thanks for, thanks for joining the, dis- the discussion.